The following discussion is going to be with Tom Evans, who has become pretty well known for his academic research within the rope rescue arena. He decided years ago to start breaking things within rope rescue systems to see how they behave. The results may surprise you from anchors to prussics to knots to static system safety factors. As a side note, Tom was in Colorado when we recorded this, so there's a couple of areas that, that get garbled here and there, but we are professional rescue people, not professional podcast people. We feel like this is a good place to start the Disruptive Rescue Series podcast, primarily because this research that we'll be talking about actually disrupted much of the dogma which some practitioners use as the Rope Rescue Foundation. This is going to be a two-part discussion with Tom. If nothing else, you will gain an appreciation to begin to question everything that you've learned or that you teach and begin to expect data to support various rigging techniques, not just to see the theoretical numbers that we see in books or that people you know, say uh, during courses as far as the strength of this anchor, or the strength of this prussic, or how to determine static uh, system safety factors. You're going to want to be able to dig down and request the studies and data sets to support what people spew from their mouths. So here's the interview with Tom. All right, this is Sean with Element Rescue and Rescue Craft, and we are talking with Tom Evans today, who's a caver, uh, vertical rope instructor, geologist, presents at Eiders quite a bit, and Tom, why don't you give us a quick thing on your background? Well, uh, it's actually a long, sorted tale. Um, I started out as, I, I went to college and I started as a chemist, and uh, I really quickly learned that I liked being outside. And so I started getting into geology, and, and that's ultimately what I did uh, my graduate work in. And, and what I found was uh, going through geology, I, I got into my got myself in some really stupid situations. I started caving when I was working on masters, and uh, I realized really quickly that if anything went wrong, um, it was myself and my the few people I was with that would would help me out. And uh, so that got me interested in, in getting involved in rescue. And so when I got out of that program, I started volunteering with some above ground um, search and rescue, backcountry rescue groups. And uh, ultimately, I started doing cave rescue. Um, that's where I spend most of my um, energy and thought. So I'm trained in both above and below ground uh, rescue. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm primarily a sedimentologist. For those of you who are, are rock nerds, uh, I study how things move in rivers, particularly bones and uh, body parts. So if you like talking about dead things in rivers, like, give me a call. Um, so, yeah, that was that's that was an awesome specialty, man. Specialties. Yeah, that's good. It is. It's uh, it's a little bit morbid, won't lie. Um, so, yeah, I did a lot of modern experimentation. I would um, toss, you know, like five, ten thousand bones in river and track where they go over space and time. What was fascinating about this uh, is I would go out into the backcountry and I'd be out there for, you know, four or five weeks by myself. And A, you go crazy for five weeks if you're alone. And, and B, I experienced a number of situations where I did come near near to death, and I don't mean that in a in a dramatic like oh my gosh pity me sense. Just you know, I made some choices that were stupid, you know, and that really helped me develop my understanding of of what you can and what you should do in the backcountry, and that you should have an out, you should have a, a rescue plan for yourself and others out of out of necessity, not out of um, uh, out of fear of of the future. So. When I got done with my, my grad work, I decided that I would rather work with skewers and uh, sport riggers than I would uh, working with paleontologists because it's more fun working with people who play with ropes on a daily basis. And I found that the research that I did for uh, riggers ultimately was used more than my academic work um, on bone and body part transport. 
So that's kind of what got me into, you know, working with ropes is, you know, the nerdling stuff doing with um, dead things and rivers was just not, was not being used. So that's what got me into ropes. So, yeah, I think we made, I made contact with you a few years ago. um, And I think one of the precipitating factors on, on me needing to talk to you was some of the research that you presented at the Eiders conferences. One of them being, and I think by the time that I talked to you, you're already on a couple iterations deep on it. Probably that, that one that was, I don't want to say controversial, but one of the biggest uh, like tipping points for people on are we actually doing evidence-based, data-driven rigging, which which you can elaborate on also, was your study that you did on webbing anchors, basically taking the, the gold standard that was out there at the time, the RAP3 Pool 2, and putting it against the basket hitch, which was kind of the ghetto anchor that most professional rescuers wouldn't wouldn't dare to use. And you put those two together and came out with some kind of interesting things uh, or interesting results. Can you talk us through kind of what, what even drove you to do that and what you thought going into it compared to, to what came out and kind of the, not the backlash, but the effects of that uh, after, after you presented that and published it? Yeah, it actually is a really interesting story. Uh, I at the the point in time in my life, um, I was living in Montana and I was working with a, both Cave Rescue and um, an above ground SAR team. And I was starting out in a training with one of the SAR units uh, in in Bozeman, Montana, and they were building a high line over a river. And one of their riggers came up to me and he said, "Hey, I need you to put an anchor on this tree." And it was this enormous like four and a half, five foot diameter, you know, big red tree, just really well rooted, alive, you know, a bomb proof anchor, right? And I, I threw a basket hitch on it. And he came back a couple minutes later and he just yelled at me. He essentially said, you know, you're going to kill someone. How dare you? You don't know what you're doing. And, and I remember looking at him thinking, okay, the people who've traded me in the past have, have said, you know, we prefer RAV3 pull twos, but you know, basket hitches are, you know, they're weaker, but they'll still work. And I thought this was like a one-person load anchor for like getting down to this river, which is really, um, really uh, a short slope. And it, this this experience stuck with me because this person was had such a violent response. And I was reasonably confident he was wrong. So I, I realized, you know, I do research on a daily basis. Why can't I just create the data set needed to you know, figure this out, you know, which anchor really is stronger, RAV3 pull 2 or basket hitch, because I ended up re-rigging it through a RAV3 pull 2. And ultimately, uh, I got a friend of mine, Aaron Stavins, um, who lives in Washington, and we got him to come out to Montana, and we did a bunch of a break tests. I think we did like 35, 36 breaks of basket hitches and then uh, of RAV3 pull 2s, all with new webbing. And what we found was that the the basket hitch was about – you know, 750 pounds stronger on average than the the, ba- the RAV3 PL2. But here's what, what was uh, st- uh, striking for me is that both of these anchors were stronger than the rope. <laughs> and so it really didn't matter. You know, yeah, the basket hitch is, is stronger, sure. But strength is not really a reason to exclude either one of those anchors. And so I was now faced with this data set that showed me that I can use either one based on strength alone. Maybe I should use the anchor that instead is most appropriate for the conditions I'm facing. So like if I need to um, have an anchor that stays in place, I'd rather use a, a RAV3 pull 2 because it doesn't slide up and down an anchor as much as, say, a basket hitch, which is really fast. So that kind of got me thinking. And so we put results at Eiders. Um, and some people were really taken aback. They were like, how dare you say 
X, Y, and Z. Um, and some people were like, hey, this is really cool. One unintended consequence of this that I thought was really interesting is that uh, there was a rigor, um, John McKinley from um, CMC Rescue, who in 2000 with, uh, I think it was Bruce Parker, um, did a research study where he did compare um, basket hitches and wrap people twos and a bunch of other different anchors. And he basically came up with the same results. But I couldn't access that paper. So I knew the paper was out there and it was, a, it was somehow had been created, but I couldn't access it. And he came up to me and said, hey, you know, I, it, you ought to read my paper. I said, okay, well, if I can get a copy of it, I'll read it, you know, because I, I couldn't find it online. And so that, that kind of interaction showed me that, like, there's a lot of information that's out there that we can use that we're not accessing. So those are kind of the, the big conclusions that I, I came to is, is, one, people are not using um, evidence and data to make their, their decisions. And two, that there is data out, or there are data out there and we just aren't using them and three it doesn't really matter um which anchor you use because they're both stronger than the rope so that, that's kind of the, the short story of the research project no that's that's interesting and i think you know one of the things that came out there is, is i think the majority almost every book that's out there right now basically tells you as long as what you're tying it around the tree or whatever substantial you have is that wrap three pull two is going to be sixteen thousand pounds because you're taking the knot out. And I thought this, mm -hmm. this was one of the really interesting parts of, of your study and the consequent studies of anchors is you found that with the knot, protecting that knot, we took the knot out, so the knot's what makes it weaker. One is the wrap three pull two wasn't a 16,000 pound strength in that. Number two is if you're clicking in or tying into a two bite anchor, like a basket hit, sending that around that tree and clicking into those two bites or on your wrap three pull two, that the knot actually is never the weakest point it's the breaking at the connection yeah that, that was a the study we did the next year um where we we tested the same anchors again except that we um, put knots in the limbs and we in none of the the tests were the the knots the weakest point um and if in all of the, the tests the weakest point was the the piece of webbing that was smashed between uh the carabiner and the other piece of webbing whether it be in a basket or rupture pull too and what I mean, you, you, what's interesting is you came up with a, a different um, set of take-home messages than I did, namely that the anchor really isn't 6, or 16,000 pounds, um, which is in my kind of a subsidiary uh, result, not because it isn't important, but because I have a hard time remembering numbers. <laughs> right. So I don't think of them as a 16,000 pound anchor. Um, I just think of them as stronger, strong enough. I, I don't know. I, we kind of kept on on studying this stuff uh, because I did get some backlash, and a lot of people were saying, "Well, you know, you what happens when you have knots in the limbs? What happens when you, um, you know, let's say you, you clip two carabiners into a basket hitch? Does that change the the results?" And ultimately, it does. But all the anchors are still stronger than the than the rope, so right, you know, who, yeah, who cares? And, and I, I agree. <laughs> and I think part of it for me, at least, was I just want to be given accurate information because. You know, the 16,000 yeah. pounds, obviously, you and I have done some work together and stuff like that. And so I, I have no issues going uh, a tad bit sketchy on, on stuff uh, at all. If I can see it in my head and be like, hey, you know, we're going to be good. I'm not going to put this much force onto this. And, and then the old, you know, if I repel fast enough and it breaks, I won't have that far to fall. But in reality, I think it's just, it's just, yeah. uh, it's just accurate information going out there. And, and that's what it is. It, it's still taught, you know, every day is the 16,000 pounds. And when in reality, it's not. And I thought when I read your stuff, it made really good sense. You're like, of course, man, those, the pieces of webbing are going around. So there's always going to be a compressed piece going on there. So it's not going to be equally dispersed. That load is not going to be equally dispersed around, you know, in a wrap three pull to those four 
arms of the of the webbing coming around, one is going to be compressed and, and taking more force. When you see it like that, then then it kind of makes sense. It's just uh, having all this stuff ingrained over the years of no, this is this is sixteen thousand pounds. This is weaker. You have to take two thirds of this off because of the knot. And come to find out, it, it was actually I, I guess just all theoretical that people were was. We actually, you you bring up a really interesting point, and that is, you know, you have in your own mind um, how you think the systems operate, and I definitely have in my own mind a way I think that these systems and anchors operate. And in none of the testing I've done in the past five or six years, none of it have I gotten the answer that I expected. And one could argue that I just don't know what I'm doing, right? <laughs> but in many cases. Uh, I think I do have a, a general idea of what is going on because I, I've been taught by people who do, right? So it, one could argue, hey, Tom, you don't know what you're doing. But if that's the case, then you know everyone doesn't know what they're doing. And I, I don't think that's the case. I think we have ideas of how things operate and we just happen to be wrong, which isn't bad per se. It just means that we need to really flesh it out and see how these systems really are operating. Um, because, I mean, obviously, we don't have a ton of people dying every year. So, you know, they're safe enough. Right. right? Um, and I should say that just because I got an answer um, doesn't mean that I'm intelligent. It just means that I got an answer, too. Right. You know? Nah, so That's interesting. And so after this, and, and we're going to talk about your website and where they can find some of this research. But after that, you came out with another study you did on Prusix. So you're kind of touching on all the the soft parts of all the rope rescue instructors out there and, and potentially calling heresy on anchors. And then you decided to take a look at, at Prussics and not that I'd compare that to, you know, Martin Luther putting the 99 thesis on the Catholic church, but um, <laughs> you kind of raised, raised some issues on there that had some pretty interesting downstream effects. And so your, your study kind of looked at, I, I guess, just kind of how Prussics actually break is there a right way or wrong way to tie it and through that you also found some things out on when you're learning that pressics they're you know soft on soft it's, it's safe it's going to clutch it'll tell you when you're overloading that system you're not worried about desheathing rope on top of that you and i were talking the other night we were both taught kind of the same thing when you're talking about your system safety factors as we're counting what the safety factor is on each component of your system a lot of times we take that minimum break strength of the Prusik and, and we double it. So when you went into the Prusik study, why don't you talk us through that a little bit on what you found out uh, with that and then some of the downstream effects of that? Well, the the, the interest in Prusiks actually came from uh, another more or less argument that I had with someone else. Um, they said, hey, you know, we, we know how uh, Prusiks operate, so we don't, we don't, we don't need to you know, do a ton of, of new testing. I thought about it. I'm like, wait, you know, I should just see what sort of um, testing's out there. And I looked at uh, particularly testing of 8-millimeter uh, prussics on 11-millimeter rope or 12-millimeter or rope because those are, those are the kind of the, the two standards for kind of professional and, and sport rescue. And I found that there really wasn't a ton of data out there. And the data that I could find um, didn't necessarily agree. So I said, well, what the heck? Let's just create some data. So I broke, uh, I think it was four different um, diameters of prussic cord on 11-millimeter millimeter um i think pit rope it was uh so pmi static rope and i found a, a couple interesting things first that you know with small diameter prussics um they all break within a, a range um and, and see for yourself what they are because i don't remember the number off the top of my head um but as you start getting to larger diameter prussics um they can start uh, breaking the rope so what would happen is I, i'd pull on the prussic and it would like desheath the rope so that the core would be intact but uh, the mantle would be broken and the of course the prussic would be just fine and this struck me because i i had always been taught like like you mentioned that prussics will slip 
that you know you reach about twelve thousand or sorry twelve hundred pounds, and all of a sudden the the pressure will slip and it will alleviate the the stress in the system. And so all of a sudden I was faced with this reality of, holy crap, you know, these prussics are, are not slipping. Um, what they're doing is they're biting on the rope and they're, they're damaging the rope and not with a, a prussic failure, which meant that the static system safety factors that we were calculating um, were not being calculated on reality. And at that point I, I presented the results and some people were annoyed, some people were not, some people loved it. Um, <laughs> But it got me thinking, you know, I, I got to do something else with this, right? Because I, you know, I, I had friends that had done testing and they've seen Prusik slipping. So I, I want to know why, why wasn't I seeing slippage? Mm -hmm. So I went ahead and did a research project the following year where I, I built three to one hull systems and uh, with six and uh, some pulleys and i pulled those to failure just to see did something about the configuration of the system that's that um is causing that that slippage and i built those whole systems out of i think three different types of rope what was fascinating about it is is it i got a different behavior pattern based on two things one the speed of how fast i pulled the the prusik and, and the second one is uh the different type of material that the, the prusik was tied on so if it was like a nylon prusik on a polyester rope um I saw one behavior pattern versus if it was a nylon prussic on a nylon rope, I get a different behavior pattern. And that struck me. <laughs> and I did, I do was able to create uh, some, some prussic slippage, but that prussic slippage happened anywhere from about 750 pounds up to 3,200, I think if memory serves. So prussics were definitely not acting as a prussic clutch, right? In the sense that they did slip. Yes. Uh, but in some cases they'd slip, two, three times. Sometimes they would slip seven times. Sometimes they'd slip once and then they cut the rope in half, you know? So like there, there was this huge range of variability in how they were behaving. And that was all new to me. The long and short of it was that when I started pulling the full systems, I realized that there's more behavior here than I had anticipated existed. Um, and then I presented it and a few people came out of the woodwork and they said, Hey, you know, we've seen this stuff for years. We just didn't want to tell people, um, which I'm like, well, I wanted to know. <laughs> right. It's kind of good to know. That's interesting. And, and with that, you, you also found that maybe how we calculated a prusik for a uh, system safety factor might be incorrect also. Uh, oh, yeah. it ended up taking our safety factor down a little bit. Not that it's completely dangerous, but it's not what people are stating their SSSF as by any means. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I forgot that you brought that up. Yeah. Um, what I found was uh, that prussics were either breaking or they were breaking the rope. It's somewhere, you know, between that 14 to 18 kilonewton category. And for those individuals who are using two kilonewton loads as their standard, um, what that does is, and they require a static system safety factor of a 10 to 1, that means that they're they're below their their needed just static system safety factor in some cases by a large margin. So because you end up with a, a static system safety factor of like you know somewhere between six and a half to you know eight and a half or so, um, depending on the loads that you're using and whatnot. Uh, but the point is is it's definitely below ten, and for the fire agencies um, who require fifteen to one, you're definitely half you know of your uh, expected static system safety factor. And I, I said this during the talk, and um, thank you for bringing this up again, that you know, just because we have a lower static system safety factor doesn't mean that our system is unsafe. It means that it's lower than we thought it was. So I'm, I'm not trying to say that uh, people need to change their 
their stated static system safety factors, just be aware that it's lower than you think it is. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and if you think that's a problem, well, then you got to engineer your system differently. If you don't think it's a problem, then lower your, your SOPs or SOGs to reflect the fact that you really have a 7 to 1 or a 10 to 1 static system safety factor. Or change your head. Or change your head, yeah. yeah. Um, which brings up two, two points. Is, is One, since we were just talking about the static system safety factor, is you, you see a lot of people that, that go by that regardless of their environment, which can dictate different parameters. Uh, you know, if we're, if we're doing a – whether it's urban or in the mountains and we have inclement weather, we have things like that. We need to probably have room to, to be able to maneuver within a range of a safety factor depending on – the, the threat that exists uh, to the casualty and, and obviously to the rescue team, especially in that austere mountain or you know even if you're sitting on top of a huge urban building trying to trying to do a pickoff or something like that. Yet there's a mindset out there. We're a 15 to one, which is not really a thing, right? It's it's yeah, a thing until you tie a knot into it and then you're not at your 15 to one anymore. But you brought up the 10 to one people who have to adhere to a 10 to one. Coming from cave rescue, I, I thought it was pretty interesting how it's verbalized on there and, and you can kind of elaborate, which I think is really great is it kind of gives that range is you aim for a seven to one i believe but it's also based on on your environment if you if you have to dip below that yeah so coming from the cave rescue side of things we we're constrained in a way that uh, a lot of other agencies are not like we don't we can't bring in a helicopter we can't change the the geometry of the passage we're in right because it's it's rock what are we gonna do blast it you know that's not gonna happen so you have to deal with uh, the geometry you're given and what happens in these in some of these really nasty environments is that you just can't build a system that is you know fifteen to one or ten to one. Um, and so what we found is that the systems that we we end up u- utilizing um, really have a seven to one static system safety factor when you test them. And so that's why we picked that number. Is like we shoot for the seven to one number because we know these systems tend to work. You know, and they they work in inclement environments. And you know when you're getting when you have really nasty, wet, muddy rope in, you know, rescuing someone out of a waterfall, like you, you can get that seven to one, getting the 10 to one, uh, you know, that would take a special level of difficulty to pull off. And a special level so that, of like that, big equipment, man, <laughs> you know, like larger, oh, yeah. heavier, you know, that's not real, really realistic for yeah. that environment. No, absolutely not. So there, there's an environmental constraint. And, and what really is interesting about that is that we're, I think we're, as a community, we're really realistic about, you know, there are times when you, you really can get high um, margins of safety, and there are really times where you can't. And so what you do is you engineer your system to get as much safety as you can, given the resources that you have. Now, one one can realistically argue, hey, look, you should always build a system in which, you know, you have, say, 15-1 static system safety factor. And that's all right and good when you can, you know, get the equipment in um, and you've got time. Uh, the problem with, I think, cave rescue and to a lesser extent backcountry or mountain rescue is that the environment kills your patient. And if you think about this, like say you sprain your ankle and you're on uh, say Mount Hood, you know, that that's a, an emergency where you got to get down the mountain. Otherwise you can, you're going to get hurt. But if you need, you can get airlifted off, right? Underground, if you're in a, say a 45 degree cave, if your patient isn't moving, <laughs> they're going to die of hypothermia. You know, okay, now let's just add a little bit of water to this. Say it's a, a cave that has a little bit of water flow, not a ton, you know, maybe a few tens of um, uh, CFS, you know, it, not a lot of water, but enough. You know, now you've got a wet patient who isn't moving 
you know, in, in what I would consider a fairly warm cave, you know, somewhere in that 45 to 55 range, like that's pretty warm. So the way we look at it is the cave will kill you faster than your injury will. So the goal is get you out. You know, what's in the best interest of patient care is getting them out, uh, out of the environment. And so the amount of time it would take to, to bring in the heavy duty equipment, to bring in the second rope or to bring in the, you know, you'll pick your poison, whatever you need to get that higher static system safety factor is not in the best interest of patient care, you know? Yeah. So that's, that's where we come from. Um, that side of thing. Uh, I should kind of deviate this conversation a little bit into kind of explaining why we use static system safety factors. What's going on here is like we can really easily calculate forces in a system when it's static, when just a load is hanging from them. Um, but it's really hard when you start having things bounce around or move. And because these st- uh, dynamic forces are so hard to calculate or measure, uh, what we've done is we said, okay, well, because there's an element of the unknown, let's engineer the system to be really strong, stronger than it needs to be, so that it kind of takes care of that ambiguity of having uh, dynamic system or gen- dynamic forces on the system. And that safety factor is kind of a fudge factor. We're saying, you know what, we know that this system is going to hold, say, you know, my weight, which is a little over killing it. So let's just assume that if I take a fall... I won't generate more than 10 times my, my mass in uh, strength. Okay, I need a system that's at least um, has a static system safety factor of, you know, 10 to 1, right? Well, that's great. That's one way to handle safety in your system. Another way to handle safety is to say, well, let's just engineer a system that will uh, absorb energy. You know, let's put a screamer in there. When you rig one way versus the other, one is kind of a thought process. The other one is kind of a, okay, I, I don't want to deal with the problem. Let's just put in some sort of load-absorbing device uh, or energy-absorbing device. Uh, device. Um, and I don't want to criticize either one, but simply to say that they both have their uses. But it means that if you're going to choose a static system safety factor, it's literally personal preference. Yeah, and, and you know, I think that's a little bit of a misconception even in the fire side is when you look through NFPA – it doesn't state it, you know. 1983 is a uh, is a manufacturer guideline, but when you when you look at it, everything comes back to an authority having jurisdiction. So if yeah. you're you're a mountain team, you are are probably going to want to deviate off what you would do if if you had unlimited help, unlimited trucks, and and heavy heavy gear. And I think that's a huge misconception is people are like, oh, we are this or we are that. And I'd be amazed to see what the actual number is of fire departments that actually have their own authority having jurisdiction that dictates the equipment and the the safety factor with any kind of data-driven uh, methodology. But you brought up a good point is we kind of have this uh, – puppy mill of rope rescue training. And I agree, you know, you and I talked about, you know, you need rules until you understand things kind of as, as training wheels. But at the mm-hmm. same time, they, with the system safety factors, I think it's in, interesting that, you know, obviously it comes from the, an engineering background, but you'll have a group that'll be like, hey, we, we adhere to a 10 to 1. And that's awesome, except what an overkill that would be if you plan on just repelling off something. Oh, massive! You, you know, it, but yeah. that, that's it. That that's my lane, and this is it. And so, no matter what, we got to make access and get down here. It's that same mentality of rigging versus, let's say, we're getting ready to lower uh, a rescuer and a casualty 
off an edge of a cliff using a, a pretty high artificial high-directional tripod or bipod that we have in there with guy lines and we're worried about resultant forces and thinking, okay, what if this drops and what is the impact going to be? And yeah, then, then you're probably going to need to put some fudge in that thing just in case. Um, but at the same time, we could completely lower that artificial directional to, to mm-hmm. you know, a, a meter off the ground. The rescuer stays on his knees, and even if there is a problem with the rigging and, and that thing drops or the legs kick out, one, your resultant force footprint is so much smaller that you just increase your safety factor by, by changing just part of your system because yes. you pretty much eliminated big potential impact that you could, you know, where artificial high directional, the tripods over the edge were really just a edge management type of thing. And then I think as a second or third order, we're like, oh, check this out. Now I don't have to get down. I can stand up and go over the edge with this casualty on the Stokes basket. They just got higher and higher, which actually made them more and more dangerous. But yes. uh, I just think that it's, it's interesting that we should, we should probably know that range. What is the most force that I could actually generate by me going over the edge? And even if I got a sketchy anchor, if I stand up and do the traditional, you know, lean back, L out, you know, I'm creating a lever onto my anchor versus, okay, I've got a sketchy anchor. I'm just going to sit on my butt and I'm just going to slide off the side and go into a motion. And I took a lot of that stress off my anchor and increased my safety factor. What's interesting about what, what you're talking about is, is something that we have uh, had to deal with in, in KVSAR for quite a long time because we can't have – for most of our pitches, we can't have tripods, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's no space for it or how would we even get them in? Right. You know, the, the, bar, the bars are – it's not even a practical solution. Um, and so all of our edge transition techniques have the, um, the litters coming up and over basically scraping on the edge. And I tried doing some preliminary testing where um, I was measuring the forces on uh, the anchors and on the load, uh, simulating a failure of one of the ropes right at the edge. And the forces were so low that I could barely measure them. <laughs> you know. Now, if you did that with a, a, a rescue system in which you've got a standing litter attendant who's dropping right at the edge, I mean, you're generating some significant forces here. Oh, you know, uh, you know, they're all over the place. And so, like you said. M- I think that the solution to reducing a lot of these forces is not to say, oh my gosh, demand a 15 to 1 static system safety factor. Instead, it's to say, okay, have your litter tenant go over on a separate rope. And now you have half the load. Yep. Okay. You know, rather than having a high directional, well, instead use an edge transition technique that, that brings your patient up and over the edge without having eye help. Right. Now, it might be more difficult, <laughs> you know, because, you know, I, I really like I help. It makes everything so easy, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you also have, you know, doubled the forces or tripled the forces in the system that are possible. So what what is more dangerous? Is it more dangerous to have uh, a greater possibility of a fall with a 10 to 1 static system safety factor? Or is it better to have a much lower potential fall with a lower static system safety factor? Right. And I think, you know, even on that line is it makes it nice, you know, when you're standing up in that transition. But if you look and reverse that a little bit, the time it takes to actually construct that, considering that you've got an emergency, which is why you're there rescuing somebody, the time that it takes sometimes to to build in all the safety and things like that and to compensate is kind of crazy where all of a sudden you get wrapped up and we're doing a training and we're right next to some folks that were uh, up in the mountains of Western North Carolina and it was a park service rescue team. And it was amazing just the amount of time it took to build their systems. Mm -hmm. Considering that you potentially have somebody, you know, obviously it was training, but the amount of time to build in all this safety that a lot of people 
we're finding very complex, which adds a whole other problem of by adding all these levels of safety, are we actually making things less safer because of complexity that people have to, to work within? But just the amount of time, you're like, man, isn't this supposed to be a rescue? You know, we could. Yeah, yeah. We, I, I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of bizarre. The other side of what I want to bring up that you brought up that I thought was great is we've been hitting this for a while, but you're bringing it up in the in the caves and the Iranian type stuff that. Uh, so much of it is based on your environment, the environmental pathology yes. that you're having to deal with. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that we've brought up is that a lot of people focus on, yes, I'm, I'm dealing with the patient pathology. Oh, it's a sprained ankle. Yet the environment is killing that patient too. And if you can't work within that environment and to problem solve rapidly, because you, a lot of times you won't have beta necessarily on where you're going mm -hmm. to do this rescue. So, you know, a fire department will get, you know, they get a fire alarm and they've got a layout of the building and they've got where the stairwells are and they've got where this is and the elevator keys and blah, blah, blah. You know, in those type of rescues, you don't have beta and you've kind of got to adapt as you go. That adds time to it. And, and I think that that environmental pathology, a lot of people kind of sweep to the side because we, we can't control that. You've actually got to be good. You've got to think about it. Okay, that's the end of our part one discussion with Tom Evans. Part two is going to pick up where we left off and continue to discuss things like future research, data-driven rigging, twin rope, or mirrored systems versus traditional main and belay line systems. And that should be up in another day. Thanks.